Hi, this is Chantel Schieffer, President and CEO of Leadership Montana. Views and opinions shared by guests of Listen First Montana do not reflect the opinions of all of our alumni or organization. We are a large group with lots of opinions, believe me. If you hear something that makes you uncomfortable, we invite you to listen deeply, listen hard, and listen first. I'm Chantel Schieffer, and this is Listen First Montana. Today, we are in Billings, and our guest is Samuel Enemy Hunter. Samuel is an actor, an artist, an activist, a teacher, and a community leader. Samuel is an enrolled member of the Crow tribe and resides in Crow Nation. He is a traditional two-spirit person and a sun dancer. Samuel graduated from Little Bighorn College with an associate's degree in Crow history and language and graduated from the University of Montana with a bachelor's degree in English creative writing with an emphasis on nonfiction and poetry. Samuel is a community leader in Crow Nation. He works to teach Crow culture and traditions to youth and to people across Montana. Welcome, Samuel. Hello. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to talk to you today. I'm very excited to be here. So I want to start by just asking you, how are you? Not the, hey, I'm fine, I'm good, but really, how are you? I, I am very balanced at this point in my life. And um, it took me 25 years to get to that point. And, um, but just with being back home, with really taking a step back and looking at my life and my worth and my value, um, that really helped balance me uh, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically. Uh, this is the best I have felt in 25 years since I was 18 years old. Wow. And, and, and honestly, a lot of it has to do with Leadership Montana. That really was, uh, when I went through the flagship program, uh, that was a really um, kind of hard time in my life. And it was a wake-up call. And even just being in the program, I was like, okay, how did I get to this program? And so all these questions I was asking myself about who I am and what my worth is and what my value is, not just to my family, but to my tribe and to Montana as a whole. Um, I really, um, that really helped me out. And it really made me take a step back and reevaluate who Samuel Jackson Enemy Hunter is. Mm. Uh, you have left me speechless, which is hard to do. I actually wanted to have part of this conversation kind of about how Leadership Montana has impacted your growth. And, you know, going back to October 2019, uh, or 2018, excuse me, and we're in Butte. And I know that you're asking yourself, why am I here? Why am I in this room? Yeah. And you struggled being in that room. And we sat down at the Park and Main Cafe in Butte, Montana for a couple hours, and we talked it through. And then I left, went back to the classroom, and soon after that, you walked in and 
we were off to the races. Yep. And every, and I, even now, when I think about that time and that breakfast that we had, uh, I still get really emotional because that was a turning point in my life. Um, was, okay, do I continue with this? It's going to be hard. Or am I going to walk away from this amazing opportunity and go back to doubting myself and my leadership and um, really self-medicating myself, I guess, is what I would have went back to. Mm-hmm. And I really saw that you cared. And not just you, I, but the class, my classmates and Leadership Montana. But it was sitting there for those couple hours and truly being with somebody who saw something in me that I have not seen in so long. And I was a mess. I was mm-hmm. crying. Even after we left, uh, it takes a lot for me to cry because I'm a big, tough Indian man. Um, <laughs> but I walked around Butte downtown, uptown, I guess, and, and just cried. I didn't care who saw me. I was just like, okay, what am I doing? Why am I walking away from this? And, and as you know, and as my classmates know, through the entire time, it was a struggle for me mm-hmm. to even stay in the class. Yeah. And I've had some amazing conversations with some of my classmates about that. And, um, yeah, that's, that was a very awesome program to go through. So I, I want to come back to that because one of my questions for you is going to be, what keeps you showing up? So we're going to pause. We're going to put a pin in that and come back to that. Who is Samuel today? You said you feel grounded. You feel balanced. Mm -hmm. Tell me more. So I am a Bada person uh, in the Absalaga Nation. And and Bada is a very, um, there really isn't an English translation to that. but the term two-spirit is the westernized term. And in, in my language, what that means is a person who has the spirit of a man and the spirit of a woman uh, within their body. And, you know, in, in today's society, we're kind of clumped in with the LGBT community, but that's not who we are. In our history and in our tribe and in our culture, we are educators, we're caregivers, uh, we're medicine people, uh, we're counselors, we're um, listeners, you know, we're, we're all around each Bada person today on the reservation and in, in the tribe has a very specific role. And it is. It's those specific roles that we have. So today, for who I am, who Dakutuk uh, Desh is, is a caregiver, is a leader, um, is a medicine carrier. Um, and so that's kind of where, going back to my roots, um, and really bringing that back and bringing it out 
um, not really, I mean, it really has made a change for myself, but it also has started to make a change in my family and in my community uh, because there was that piece missing for quite a while after I left the, re the reservation and being back for about four years now, um, I'm starting to see a change in my family and with the, my nieces and nephews that I'm helping raise mm -hmm. and uh, just the community itself. Let's talk about community and especially in this time with, with the pandemic, with COVID, what's happening in Crow Nation and how are you, how are you addressing it? That one is, is tough because we are a sovereign nation and we are run by our tribal leaders. And when the pandemic first started, the reservation was shut down because we are huge on tourism with Bighorn Canyon, Bighorn River right there, with the Little Bighorn Battlefield right there on the reservation. Uh, tourists, the tourism on the reservation is huge because of those things. But when the pandemic hit, our chairman did shut down the reservation. But because there was, so, there was such a backlash from fishermen and boaters, um, he opened he opened up the reservation again because there were checkpoints. There were people at the checkpoints turning these people around. You know, you are not a tribal member. You cannot be on the reservation. And these non-tribal members did write letters to the governor and to other political figures in Montana. And there was such pressure for the chairman to reopen the reservation that he did. And once that happened, the Crow Reservation became the hotspot of the pandemic in Montana. Bighorn County is a majority of the Crow Reservation. And when you look at the numbers of cases and deaths, it's all Bighorn County. That's the largest number. Mm -hmm. And that was, again, brought in by non-tribal members. And so the tribe really had to switch gears and got funding to take care of people on the reservation. If you were exposed, you had to self-quarantine for two weeks. If you uh, did test positive, you had to quarantine at home for two weeks. And it took a lot of effort from the tribe and individuals to make sure that these families were taken care of. And on the reservation, anybody who tested positive for COVID were treated like an outcast mm -hmm. by the community that they were in. And so that was really tough because these families were being harassed and uh, it, it, was a, it was a really bad time at the peak of the pandemic. Things are starting to slow down now, but it was, it was pretty tough. And so we really had to uh, think of safety first, but also taking care of those families that could not leave their homes 
And so we would take food, uh, like drop food off at their door, boxes of food, uh, boxes of uh, disinfectants, um, toilet paper. We actually had toilet paper then. (laughs) 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 And so we really had to make sure that for two weeks, these families were taken care of. Mm -hmm. They were the first priority. And then we really had to make sure that elders and children were taken care of. Again, because in our tribe and in our culture, the elders are who we take care of because they are the ones who pass down our knowledge. And the children are the ones who are going to carry the knowledge moving forward. So in our culture, the elders and the children are very important. And they're the ones that we take care of the most. And so that's where there had to be a very uh, conscious, conscious effort from community people to take care of them. Mm-hmm. But the numbers have gone down, not by a whole lot. Uh, but it, it just seemed at one point, every week, I was going to, well, not, well we couldn't go to funerals. Um, but there was a funeral, like two or three, sometimes four a week mm. um, for a couple months. And that, it, the community is still healing mm-hmm. from that. Yeah. And, and as, a, as a community leader, someone who's helping, you know, keep everyone safe and, and keep everyone fed and, um, you know, providing those supplies and materials and support, what kind of toll does that take on you as a leader? Uh, it was, it was really stressful, and I didn't sleep because not only was I helping in the community, I was watching my family and making sure they were being taken care of, and and it it really wore me down. Um, but again, it was just, we gotta, we gotta keep going. We got to move forward. We need to get through this. We don't know when there's going to be, um, when it's going to end or when there's going to be a vaccine for it. So really had to move forward and really, um, started using again, our culture in our traditional medicines. And there was a point where I thought that I was infected, that I was going to test positive. And that was a really scary feeling and a very scary thought. And so I went to the hospital, and it, it turned out that I, I just had a bacterial infection in my lungs. And I just had that. But <laughs> uh, it was better than being tested positive for COVID. And I did have sure. to take a break. I took a break as much as I could. But I was still like, okay, don't have COVID. I'm still going to push myself to go out there and get food to the people. Mm-hmm. And I was working with um, a couple nonprofits on the reservation and uh, finding grants for food, finding other nonprofits who would come in and bring food. Um, Essential Eats Distribution out of Missoula was one of those nonprofits that would come in. And Plenty Doors, which is on the reservation, would bring in, you know, would find funding to bring in food. 
um, bring in, uh, well, they would put together care packets for, with disinfectants, um, masks. Uh, and another thing that I do is I sew and I made like a hundred masks for plenty doors to put in their boxes mm-hmm. or people would come to the Little Bighorn College where they're located and just pick up a mask. If you needed a mask, go over there. And so on top of that, I, at, in the evenings, I was sitting at home with my mother sewing all these masks wow. and getting them over there. And um, so for quite a while, it was a lot of going, 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 and just making sure that, okay, the next day, okay, I'm rested enough. I got enough coffee in me. Okay, got to go again. Here we go again. <laughs> Here we go again. Feet on the ground. Yes. And it, and it was, it seemed like it was something different every day. Oh, yeah. And it's like, oh, my God, what next? What next? Don't <laughs> ask that question, what next, because who knows, right? Yeah. So let's talk about your art for a okay. moment. Um, we have in front of us here a traditional talking stick that you made for Leadership Montana. Um, you're an artist. You're, you're a beater. You're a sewer. Tell us more. And so I had learned to do that for my great-grandmother when I was pretty young. I was, I believe, 10 years old when I first started uh, doing beadwork, and it was just watching her. And my great-grandmother uh, was very well known as a crow artisan herself, and she had collectors all over the world. Um, and she grew up in a time where they just had art that they would sell. And at that time, in the early 1900s, when she learned, um, it was pretty like they didn't have the materials that we have now and so just looking at her stuff and the things that she has in the Smithsonian like how in the world did she do this how in the world did those elders and those artists at that time do that and you know do just even now I, I have it easy like I can just go down to a store go online and order what I need but um yeah no that I don't know how they did it but she was the one who really taught me and if I was serious about it um she really was like okay this is the way to do it so everything that I do is very specific to what she had taught me and that's something that I've carried on this entire time and it this past year this past summer I I did on artist residency at the uh, Crazy Horse Memorial in South Dakota. It was virtual, Uh, but I had done an artist residency two years ago there, the summer of 2018, and I had reapplied to do it again. You can apply every two years. So I had applied for summer of 2020, and they're like, oh no, we started this new program. We, We don't want you to do the residency. You've already done that. We have a new program, and it's called the Living Treasures program, and you're a living treasure in beadwork. And that made me laugh. I was like, what? <laughs> okay, no, I, I, I don't want to do that. 
And so it took a lot of conversation with uh, my friend out there, the director of that program. Like we, he called me and he was like, okay, why don't you think you're a living treasure? And I'm like, uh, I'm not, I really don't feel like I'm to that point yet in my life. Uh, because I was thinking of my great grandmother who at that time when she was teaching me, she was in her seventies and I was just like, I'm, I'm not that old yet. <laughs> really, <laughs> I really don't feel like I'm a living treasure yet. And, you know, he was like, okay, let's talk about your beadwork. And he was like, and how the rundown is going to be is every day you're going to, he was like, it's for seven days. You have an hour to teach beadwork and okay, what are you going to teach the first day? And so he really just started talking to me about beadwork and the different styles. And so I was like, okay, I'll teach peyote stitch on this day. I'll do brick stitch on this day. I'll do loom. And he was like, you know, I don't know anybody else who can name off all of these types of beadwork to do and teach them. He was like, I've been doing this for a long time. And for you just at the top of your head to say, okay, I'm doing this, this. He was like, why do you not think you're a living treasure? And he was like, people need to know this and people need to learn from you. And he was like, I am not going to take no for an answer. And he was like, you think about why you don't think you're a living treasure and get back to me. And I did. And I was like, what? Okay. And, and I just started talking to some other people who do beadwork and who are very well known in the community and the beadwork community in the U.S. and Canada and they're like, no, I learned a lot from you just by looking at your stuff or messaging you. And, and that was something that I didn't really realize that I was doing. It was just I was answering people's questions or, you know, showing them where to go to get stuff or finish their projects or what have you. And so I was like, oh. And all of them were like, no, you need to do that program. You are a living treasure. You need to do that program. So we're hearing you tell that story and thinking that you're not a living treasure and then realizing, well, maybe maybe I do deserve that title, that recognition. Makes me think about when you realized that you did belong in Leadership Montana and you did belong in that room. And that was, you know, the second of eight sessions, uh, seven sessions. And you kept showing up and you kept showing up and you kept showing up and you still show up. You come to alumni events, um, you participate in alumni events, you're here with us today, you keep showing up. And first of all, I'm super grateful for that. Thank you for always saying yes. Like today, you sat down and said, what am I doing here? (laughs) What are we doing? (laughs) Didn't even know what we were doing. Um, And so my question for you is, especially, you know, when you, let me back up, When, when we're in the state of the world that we're in right now, and our society is reckoning with race in such a massive scale. And you find yourself often being one of a few people who look like you in a room and you keep showing up. Tell me what that means to you. Uh, If I don't show up, who else is gonna show up? That is what I go back to is as a native person in Montana doing this work with nonprofits that are run by non-native people, who is going to show up? 
and actually go to that nonprofit or even how to approach them and say, we need help. And Crow people are very proud people. They really don't ask for help. Like we take care of ourselves. But that group and that handful of Crow people that go out to the nonprofits, we're the ones who are like, okay, I am going to put my pride aside and ask for help. And I think you you know that from Leadership Montana, it was tough for me to even ask for any kind of help. Mm-hmm. And um, and there were times I don't I don't know if you know this or have I even told you. I know I told some classmates, but there were times where I was too proud to ask for a room that if some one of my friends wasn't in one of the towns we were at, I slept in my car. I used to put the seat back and sleep in my car yeah. because I was too proud to ask you or Leadership Montana, I need a room tonight. And of course, all my classmates I told are ready to hit me. <laughs> They're like, yeah. I, you could have stayed with me or I would have got your room or, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but that was something that, again, I really had to get out of that mindset and really say, okay, I need help. And I still have a hard time with that, but there are people that I'm like, if I really need help, if I can't figure it out myself, I will ask for help. Mm-hmm. And and that's where it is. And you have a whole tribe in Montana that has that mentality of, we are not going to take help from white people and these nonprofits who really don't give a shit about us. They want it for their numbers. They want to use us for our numbers. They want to give themselves a pat on the back. And that's kind of what the history has been like for the reservation and nonprofits and these broken promises that stick with people. And there's that generational trauma that is continuing and we're trying to break that now. Are, what are some ways you think that we can address this in Montana, these racial divides, and how can we, what, what, can, what can we do? You have a magic wand. Here's a pen. This is now a magic wand. You can, you can fix racism in Montana. What does that look like? That looks like the Native and non-Native people working together to create a better Montana. And one of the things about Montana is, and why I feel there is so much racism is because there is that, I feel there's still that mentality of we're the old West, we still are very cowboys and Indians, that we are still fighting against each other. And, and it blows my mind that there still is that racism today. Even friends that I have are like, well, I don't have white privilege. I'm like, uh, then you do. <laughs> you saying that? You do. <laughs> and, you know, it really, um, and I've had to cut people out of my life like that. Uh, friends I've had for years, and I'm like, okay, I was just tolerating your shit. I'm done. Because 
yeah, you're my friend, but you're racist against my family and my people and other people, other tribes. And, you know, and kind of realizing that. And the other thing that really bothers me, I heard it in a political campaign on the way here today, and I think, and I've called people out on this at alumni events, is when they say, well, I'm a fifth generation Montanan. And that's what that guy was basing his campaign on. And when people say that, I'm like, well, you're pretty much eliminating the fact that the native people that were in Montana before it came a state don't exist anymore. And we're still here. Mm -hmm. So for you to say, oh, well, I'm a fifth generation Montana. This is why I'm good for Montana. No, that's why you're not good for Montana is because you're completely ignoring the fact that my ancestors have been here for a thousand years, over a thousand years. And, you know, and that, again, that mentality is part of the problem. Mm -hmm. But when you address that, it's like, well, just go back to your reservation then. That's where you belong. Uh (laughs) And I've been told that. And I'm like, "Uh, no, you're not going to keep me on the reservation. There's, There's so many opportunities for education of non-native people about the the challenges and opportunities mm-hmm. of our native cultures do you do you think that it is a lack of understanding about sovereign nations and about culture that kind of blocks us from building those bridges probably because each each sovereign nation in montana has their own laws and constitution that we that we abide by and it only pertains to enrolled members and so that's what we're grown that that's what we grew up with and then it probably is the lack of understanding or education um but again where do we start with that it's supposed to be taught in schools Mm -hmm. it's in the montana constitution that that is supposed to like montana Indian history is supposed to be taught in the schools. Indian education for all. Yep. And that is one thing that is not being taught. It's not in the curriculums. There's Native American Week in November. You do that. You teach everything that's not about Montana Native. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, because we're all the same. Um, But, you know, and then that school gets their check mark okay, they, they taught that curriculum or they taught Indian education for all in November, uh, but it actually should be in the curriculum. Mm-hmm. These kids should be learning. And it blew my mind when I was teaching fourth grade this past year in Lodgegrass, even on a reservation school, it wasn't being taught. And so I created my own curriculum. I went to the principal. I'm like, I am changing my curriculum. I'm adding Crow history in there, Crow language, art, and music. That None of that was in the curriculum for fourth graders. And she was like, okay. And, and you have the background to do that, right? With the background your, to do that, with yeah. With your degrees. Mm-hmm. And so my class, um, we had fun. Like, I never thought I would teach fourth graders. I was a substitute teacher for the high school, and I was like, I will not go to the elementary or junior high. But again, it was they could not keep a substitute in the fourth grade class. 
So I got offered a job to take over that class. And I was like, oh, I really don't. That first morning, I was like, what did I do? Why am I <laughs> sitting here? I remember <laughs> that like first week, oh I God. think I talked to you. Yeah. <laughs> of Samuel. He is standing on the steps of the United States Supreme Court in traditional regalia. You're looking up towards the door. There's a beautiful light shining just above the door. The sky to me looks like it's maybe early morning. What are you thinking about in this moment? I... I was thinking, okay, we're here. We are, uh, as a crow person, standing there yet again in front of the Supreme Court. This is not the first time that we had, that the crow tribe has been to the Supreme Court. Um, And we've always been ruled against. And so this case, again, was very, uh, we were very unsure, and it was the Herrera versus Wyoming hunting case. And, and again, that, go, that went all the way back to our treaty rights with the United States government. And this is the first case ever of its kind because it was dealing with treaty rights. And just standing there and and again this even getting to the point of the supreme court i cannot even imagine what clavin herrera was going through in those five years that it took to get to that point because i was i was new to this um case i was only a part of it for six months before we got to the supreme court and oh no actually it was it was about a year yeah it was a year um because it was our when we were in Big Sky. That's right. When I got the call. Mm-hmm. And they're like, do you want to be a part of this? And that's when I was working for um, that other... An organization. <laughs> an organization in Montana. Uh-huh. in Montana. And I'm like, of course, why wouldn't I? You know, Clavin's my cousin. It has to do with my tribe. Yeah, well, we are going to fight this. And, and that was the kind of the final step. And there was so much jumping through hoops. And just getting to that point that when we did get there and it's early in the morning um, you know for the Supreme Court hearings only 50 people are allowed in the public excuse me and you know I had to be one of those 50 people so me and my group my sisters and my friends that were there we stood in line in front of the Supreme Court at four in the morning and waited and then they come out the security comes out and they start handing out tickets around eight o'clock but in this picture uh, it was when the sun was coming up and I actually was praying uh, as a sun dancer our prayers um, begin when the sun comes up and so I was really um, started praying then as soon as I saw that speck of sunlight I stood there and I started praying, and one of my friends actually took that picture. He didn't know that I was 
praying. So I'm actually not looking really at the Supreme Court. I'm praying for the outcome of this case. And just because we really were unsure again at this point um, if it, w it was a 50-50, we were going to win or lose. It was very, usually you can tell, oh, that's not going to pass. That's going to pass. This one, we're just like, oh my gosh, I don't know. And it, it, was, it was really um, intense. And that headdress that I'm wearing, I refuse to take it off because um, that is um, my ceremonial headdress. And a couple months previous to this, the, the chairman of the Shoshone Bannock tribe, there was a hearing for them on taxes, and he was not allowed into the Supreme Court hearing because he was wearing his traditional headdress. And that was huge. That made national news. And so the attorney, one of the attorneys for the nonprofit I was working for at the time, he was like, what if they don't let you in? Or what if they ask you to take it off? And I was like, then I won't go in because I'm, I'm not taking this off. And so there are so many checkpoints in security. We went through one to the next to the next. And they're like, oh, my God, okay, it's going to be this next one. And so we were all kind of betting on, okay, at what point are they going to ask me to take it off? And got to that final checkpoint before you get into the Supreme Court. And a security guard came over pulled me aside and I'm like, ah, it's right there. And just asked me if I was representing a tribe. I said, I'm representing the Crow tribe. That's my tribe. This is our hearing. And he's like, are you the chairman of the tribe? I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm a spiritual leader. And he was like, okay. And took my ticket and let me in. And we were sitting there and in the Supreme Court room, there's security Secret Service all around. Even when we sat down, we were still thinking, okay, they're going to escort me out and have me leave. And that never did happen. And so with that headdress that I'm wearing, um, I'm the first person who's ever worn a headdress in the Supreme Court because it's, it's not allowed for any type of culture to wear any, I guess, headgear or anything that would give favor to the judges. Mm. And, um, and so that was a big thing. That was a, a whole nother article in itself. So when Clavin and I came out of the courtroom, again, they thought I was the tribal chairman. I'm like, I'm not. I'm just here with him. And a news reporter asked me if I wore that in there, and I did. So he pulled me aside and was taking pictures and interviewing me about it and um he was like that's never happened before i was like i don't think it has and so we did our own research on it and it's never happened before that is progress <laughs> I was right like, what that does that affirm to you that you're a living treasure uh yes <laughs> and and then and we did win that case and and, it, and again after both sides argue the case that's it and then you just it's another waiting game mm -hmm. and yeah we found out four months later that the supreme court voted in favor we we won by one vote 
it was very split and um yeah so that was a huge victory for for the crow tribe and set a precedent right and it did treaties yes Yes, has it been tested again since then i know it's only been about a year Uh, not yet because there again there's a whole nother process and so all these other tribes are starting to work on that that and they're going back to treaties and so it, it, it really did um, start something. I have one more question before we go into rapid fire. Last year at the Confluence, our annual leadership conference in Bozeman, you took a few of us up to the front of the room and adopted us yes. into your family. You're my brother. Yes, you are my sister. And you gave me a name that you said you would explain to me at some point. Okay. I'm hoping you'll explain it to me now. I'll, rem- I'll remind you what the name is. <laughs> Keeper of the Sacred Light. Yep. And I remember that. And, um, yeah, and, and Keeper of the Sacred Light. And so what that, where that came from, and so in my, in my tribe, uh, we are, again, very role-specific. You have to ha- carry the right to do certain things. And naming people and adopting people into our families and into the tribe is is a right that has to be passed on to us. And my father passed that down to me before he passed away in 2012. And, and I'm not the oldest, by all means, out of his 21 children. <laughs> I'm like right in the <laughs> middle. And, um, but I was his caregiver for two years and he had dementia and so there were times where he was of sound mind and we would be talking about stuff and he was like i'm gonna give this to you and there always had to be somebody from from our clan to uh, confirm that or be present when those rights were passed down and for crow people we are our original name is what we're given by the time by the time we're one not our government name and like I said my name is Dukatagdesh there's no English translation for that and so when you're given these rights to name people and adopt people into your family uh, that's a ceremony in itself and so I when we went to the confluence when we were going to when I was going to the confluence I already knew that I was going to be adopting some people I didn't know who specifically And I had fasted, I had prayed about it, and the people who I called up that time were the ones who came to me in that dream. And each one had a very specific name. And there's times, it could be four names, and that individual can pick one. But each of you had your own specific name. And with yours, uh, keeper of the sacred light is it came it comes from the sweat lodge and in that dream and at the time I was trying to figure out I knew what the name was but I was like okay where am I at is that the sun I see is that a star um, because all of these 
are very sacred to Crow people. And I realized that it was the burning embers of a sweat lodge. And so we get the sweat rocks and that's where it's completely dark. But there's just those burning embers in that pit. And when we're in there, and that's our one of our most sacred places. And, and it's that light in there that when we're in there praying and the water is poured on that light, you dump water in it. You know, it's, it's almost like a sauna in there, but a hundred times more intense. But as much as you pour that water on those rocks, there's still that light. And that's kind of what, with you being that sacred light for everything that you do, not just for Leadership Montana or for your family or Montana, um, you haven't even met your Crow family yet. You know, I don't know how, you know, what. I'm excited to see what you bring when you meet our family. Um, but Chantal carries a lot. You do a lot. And it, it and as much as everything that's put on you, everything that comes to you in your life, you're still that burning ember. You're still that sacred light that keeps coming back. And that, you know, that makes things happen. See, I need, I need to listen to that every day. Samuel, thank you. That was so amazing. All right, we have rapid fire questions, okay? All right, this has been a really amazing conversation. I am so grateful that you've been here with us. I am too. We're going to lighten it up a bit now. Okay. <laughs> Tell me your favorite word. Akbaritya. Tell me what that means. It means um, a creator. Your favorite sound? Is moving water, rivers, and creeks. That's mine too. What brings you joy? My family and waking up every day. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Yay, I'm awake. <laughs> Who's your hero? Oh my gosh. Um, heroes, my ancestors, people that have passed and made the way for me. If you could live anywhere, where would it be? Uh, I think I'm there right now. I'm pretty sure I'm there right now. Good. Your proudest accomplishment? Uh, there's, there are a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. So I really can't really think of my proudest. Um, adopting my son Jordan. That was made a huge difference in my life and his life ten years ago. Where's Jordan now? He's in Bozeman. And how old is he? He's ten. Yeah. He turned ten in June, and he's the reason I moved back to Montana when I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
if you could choose to do anything for one day, what would it be? I would travel back in time <laughs> to meet my grandparents on my dad's side. Mm. Never got to know them, but that's who I would want to meet. One thing that just keeps coming up for me in this conversation is your focus on family. Like I, I asked you to tell me about your art. You talked about your grandma's art. And you're, it's just so clear to me that family is everything to you. Yeah, is that fair? It, it is, yes. Yep. Are you reading any good books right now? What are you reading? Uh, I'm reading a lot of um, Crow history books and a lot of um, um, classics. Um, I went back to my lit box and <laughs> found all my, these classic books that I'm rereading. Okay, what are you writing right now? I'm actually writing short stories about my life journey. Mm. Can I read them? Yes. Yay. Favorite movie? Two Eyes that I was just in. <laughs> Samuel the actor. Yes. Two Eyes. We're bringing it to Montana, right? And We're going to have premieres here? We are here? working on bringing a premiere to Montana. Wonderful. And you you're, you know that I'm helping with that, right? Yes. I'm on your list. Okay. Yes. Um, now I'm going to say just a couple of words and you tell me the first thing that comes to your head. Okay. Progress. Montana. 2020. Pandemic. <laughs> Courage. Courage. Um, uh, native leaders in Montana. For sure. And Authenticity. Native people in Montana. Yeah. All right. Final, 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 final question. What song would you choose to be your personal anthem? Uh, it would be my my family honor song. So Samuel, imagine that we're in a leadership Montana event right now. You're on stage. About 200 people in the crowd, and I ask you to tell us a story. Tell us a story of impact or inspiration or leadership. What would you say? I would say do not take anyone for granted, no matter who they are. Um, friends, family, um, somebody you met on the street or in a bar, you know, just... Don't um, don't disregard those connections. Even if it was a brief connection that you had with somebody, if you had a really intense conversation, whatever that conversation was about, um, just pay attention to that human connection with everybody because it's there. And, you know, we're constantly learning from people, and whether you know it or not, and um, just kind of be aware of that. Talk about that. Uh, well, listen, I guess, and and really see that there, whatever that connection is or was, because it 
there's something there that you, there's a reason that person came into your life, into your space. And those are teaching moments. And just be aware of that. Yeah. Do you have a specific example or story of connection that's been meaningful for you? Um, I've had a, I've had a lot Mm -hmm. (laughs) and, you know, at this, uh, way back when, um, there used to be a gay bar in Billings downtown called the loft. And, um, that was where I worked. That's where I hung out. And, you know, I was hanging out one evening waiting for friends and some guy came over and we were talking and, um, and I felt like he was hitting on me, but I was like, yeah, okay, you know, let's just see where this goes. And we had had a really intense conversation. He was telling me about himself. I had no idea who he was. And, but we hung out the entire night and I ran into him about four months later after that. And he had come in, he had started dating somebody and introduced me to his boyfriend. And he was like, this is the guy that I was telling you about. And he was like, oh my gosh, thank you. If it wasn't for you, I never would have met him. And I was like, oh, did I introduce you guys? You know, I was going to, he was like, no. He said, that night that I met you and we were talking and we hung out all night, um, he said, I had just come out to my family and they disowned me and they kicked me out of the house. And he's like, I had nowhere to go. And he said, I found out there was a gay bar downtown. So I came down here. You're the first person I saw and started talking to. And he said, I, after I left, or after he left the bar, um, he went and got a room, a hotel room. And his intention that night was to take his own life because he had nobody at that point. And, and that was very, and is still very real in the LGBT community. And he said, I knew there was one person who cared. And he said, your conversations that we had and everything, I had no idea. Like, I just thought we were two guys hanging out and talking. Mm -hmm. I had no idea this guy was wanting to take his own life earlier that night. And when I met him again, a couple months later, he was happy. He had his own place. He had a boyfriend. They were getting ready to leave Montana. Um, and I don't know whatever happened to him. They, he and his boyfriend left Montana. And, but yeah, that was one of those times where I was like, oh my God, what if I had never met him? Mm-hmm. And if, what if I had never, you know, sat there and listened to him or even talked with him? And we did. We just talked about, I don't even know what, just two people hanging out mm-hmm. that I had never met before. You never know when you're going to impact someone's life so profoundly. No. And so that was one of those moments where I was like, oh, my God, I am glad I was there mm-hmm. at that point for that complete stranger. Samuel Enemy Hunter, Living Treasure. Thank you. 
for being with us today. Yeah, it's been an honor. Love you, brother. I love you too, sister. Thanks to Samuel Enemy Hunter and Chantel Schieffer for that fantastic conversation. And thanks to you for listening in. If you've enjoyed today's show and want to show support for Listen First Montana, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Those small steps can really help us connect these stories to more listeners. Our intro song is a rendition of the Montana State song by Scott Gudger, and our other music is from Blue Dot Sessions. We'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Until then, thanks for listening to Listen First, Montana.